Well, welcome. We're going to study uh, a little bit in Ruth this morning. So go ahead and get to the book of Ruth. Y'all ready? We've been in the Old Testament a little bit. And we're going to stay there. Y'all say something out loud. Just whatever is in your brain, just say it out loud. Let's just make, okay. All right, good. There we go. Some, okay, we're just... Just taking a little pulse this morning. I'm glad no one said anything inappropriate. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're all spiritually minded this morning. But I also didn't hear any Sunday school catchphrases. No one said God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, anything like that. So we might need to pray before we get started. Okay, we can laugh a little. All right. Okay, so I'm going to share something with you that I, uh, when I was in college, uh, a pastor friend of mine and mentor of mine named Randy Winfrey shared this from the book of Ruth, and it was really impactful uh, to me. I'd never uh, heard this taught out of this book before, um, and so I'm going to be sharing uh, a little bit uh, from that, obviously, and have my own little spin on some things, but that's where this comes from. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to focus uh, on, there's this moment in the book of Ruth where, and I'll, I'll give you all the background if you don't, if you're not familiar, we'll go really fast with uh, the history. Again, I've said this before, but the challenge in uh, doing these books in one week is that there's so much here. Um, we've got to kind of focus on one element, and so I'm going to try to give you enough context to where you understand what's happening in the story. Uh, but I would, as I've said before, would really encourage you to go back and slowly uh, read some of uh, some of what we've been studying just to kind of get all of it for yourself. You're not going to get that from our time this morning. We're going to figure out uh, just really one element. And this is more, I'm I'm actually taking this class. It's kind of funny. Um, I'm taking this class on uh, public speaking, and uh, which is really, it's it's been interesting. Um, There's a lot of things I do wrong, which I've, (laughs) anyway, uh, the the banter, all of that, that's like, you got to stop doing that. But uh, I haven't. So, um, Anyway, one of the things that it one of the things that it says is that that your that your audience typically has the capacity to handle three points, and so I read that the other day and was like, good. So today we're going to look at five points in in Ruth, and I just hope that you're ready for that. So, um, okay. So what we're going to do is just kind of get through the background uh, of this, and then we're going to look at five different things that Naomi is going to tell Ruth to do before she goes to uh, to Boaz. So if you're so uh, we'll we'll be mostly in chapter three. Um, but we're going to start in chapter 1, and I'm just going to give you a brief rundown. So the beginning of the book says that it takes place during the time of Judges. It doesn't really locate us much more than that, except for that this takes place in the time of the Judges. If you'll notice, the book to the left of what we're in is the book of Judges. Okay, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's located uh, there for a reason. So um, what's happening, historically, it says that there is a drought, um, and this guy named Elimelech, say Elimelech, Come on, try harder, Elimelech. There you go. He, uh, because of this drought, he needs to, move, in order to survive, he needs to move his, uh, his family uh, to Moab in order to, in order to try and survive. So what he does, he packs up everything, um, his entire family, and he moves to, uh, to Moab to try and survive. It's a pretty tragic story. So once they get there, um, he dies, Elimelech dies, um, and his wife, Naomi, is left uh, with her two sons. And her two sons, uh, at this point, uh, after, after uh, a period of time, have married 
uh, women from Moab. So they've married these uh, Moabite women, uh, Orpha and Ruth, okay? So these are the two wives of Elimelech's sons. You tracking? Okay, so Elimelech is dead. His two sons have married these two uh, Moabite women, and they are there uh, with Naomi. Okay, so it doesn't really tell us exactly when this happens, but they live there a period of about 10 years, and then the two sons also die. Okay, so now here's the story. Here's, here's kind of what's, this is basically total and complete disaster for this family, and there's, there's reasons why. Okay, first of all, they are dislocated from home. So they are not any longer um, at home. Elimelech moved them to, uh, to Moab to try to survive, and then he passes away. The other layer of just absolute doom, so they're, they're not at home, but the other layer of, of total doom for this family is the fact that now there are, uh, this family is comprised of three uh, widows. And this is essentially um, a death sentence. There is no, uh, no way for them uh, really to survive, uh, to provide for themselves in that cultural context, um, to be a widow displaced from family and community, um, your, your life was essentially over. Uh, it would have been spent in, in total poverty, um, and, uh, and you were at major, major, major risk. So they've got that times three, okay? So now you've got this, this group of three widows uh, that have gathered uh, together, and Naomi's got to make a decision. So she's the eldest of these women, and she's kind of the matriarch that's left here, and she's got to make a decision on what they're going to do. So she decides that they're going to go back home, uh, that there's really no hope for them in Moab, and so she's going to going to go back home. What we're going to read here is her conversation with the two, uh, the two uh, daughters-in-law, and, uh, and, and we'll figure out what happens there. So start in verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her, uh, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So basically what she tells them, this is it for us. You go back home. It's best for you. She's trying to make a really good decision for them. Tells them to go back to their home as well. Because remember, they're in their, their home location. Uh, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Uh, then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. I, I think you need to really gain here as we continue to go um, the, the deep hurt that's involved um, in all of this. So there is, there is lots of grief. They're grieving their, their husbands. They're grieving being dislocated. And now they're grieving having to separate from each other. And uh, she says, where did I go? Uh, verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Oh, no, I skipped. Sorry, verse 10. And they said to her, so this is their response to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So you can see she's even taking some of their plight on her own shoulders. Kind of like, this is, this is my fault. And she's telling them, look, even if I were to have sons today, you couldn't wait uh, to marry and, you know, until they were, they were older. So she's really arguing with them that they need to go. Look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is really interesting. We're not going to get into that. The text doesn't really tell us directly where this passion comes from in Ruth. Later, we're going to learn from Boaz what he says about her, about her reputation. She has a tremendous reputation. She has a, a reputation of high character. Um, and so we, we can kind of read into this statement just extreme loyalty from Ruth. Now, it doesn't tell us that directly, but we begin to get an idea of who she is. And she tells Naomi that I am not going to, uh, I'm not going to leave you. And, and, and you got to understand um, how intense of a statement that was. What she was offering was she was offering to, uh, to take the plight of being dislocated on herself. Well, essentially what she's saying is Naomi's issue right now is that she is away from family and she's widowed. And what Ruth is saying is that, no, instead of me returning to my people, I'm going to volunteer to leave my uh, people, my country, my home, and I'm going to go and, and be essentially in this with you. So um, extreme loyalty, uh, extreme uh, passion in her. And, and it was, this, was not, uh, this was not naivety. She knew what this meant for her, and she was signed on anyway. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's, a, that's a passage we read a lot, what, what Ruth says to her. So that's kind of where, where they're at. So now they go back, uh, back home. So Na- Ruth and Naomi uh, return back home, and they begin kind of in this plight of being widows uh, together. And uh, we find out that a relative of Naomi's, uh, I'm sorry, a relative of Elimelech, so Naomi's husband, uh, was prospering. It's this guy named Boaz. And, uh, and it, the scripture tells us that Boaz was a worthy man. So he's a, he was a good man. He was a relative of Elimelech. The drought had passed and he was prospering. Um, and so what the, kind of the rule was, um, and we can, you can see this back in the book of Leviticus, but basically what God had commanded for those that, that, were, um, that made their living agriculturally, they were not to, the scripture says, glean, um, or they were not to harvest from certain parts of the field so that the poor and the widows among them could gain what was, uh, what was left over and, and be taken care of. So basically, like if a field was square, they would round it off and the edges would be left for whoever it was, the poor and the widow, to come and gather gather food from those edges. And if anything, if there were ever mistakes, if any of the, um, like if in the harvest, if things fell to the ground, they would not pick those up. They would leave it. And so the poor and the widow would come behind them. That's, that's part of the way that God had designed uh, to take care of, um, of the poor and the widow. So there's this guy, Boaz, who is doing well. Um, and so Naomi sends Ruth to go and glean, this is what scripture says, glean from his fields. It means go get food for us. So essentially what they become is they become uh, kind of like beggars, right? So they're, they're, they're um, kind of in this position. They've got to do whatever it takes to survive. And she goes to this relative of Elimelech's field to, um, uh, to, to gain food for her and Naomi. Again, just notice Ruth's character. Um, she's, going, she's obviously younger and she's volunteering. She's going um, to get, provide for her and Naomi. So Boaz, I'm going really fast. There's a lot here, but Boaz notices 
uh, Ruth in the field. He asks uh, about her. And, uh, and, and she kind of catches his eye. And, and I don't think that we need to necessarily read anything romantic at this point uh, into that. It just she catches his eye. He's kind of heard, we'll learn later, that he's heard about her plight and Na- her and Naomi's return. And he notices her and he gives her favor. And basically he says, you don't have to glean from the edges. You come in and, uh, and, and, um, and he gives her favor and opportunity uh, to, to gain from his uh, his produce, so he gives her um, extra uh, an extra portion of provision. So some time goes. Now we're in chapter three again. Now I'm so sorry. I know it's crazy fast, but um, chapter three. So so here's what happens. Uh, let's look at verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were?" See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, and she's about to give instruction. So this is super, super, super important. She's not just realizing that he's a relative. She's not just kind of discovering that and, and making light conversation. What that text says is, and some, does anybody's version say kinsman? Is she our kinsman? Any, okay, who, what version are you reading? That's okay. That's okay. Okay, so it's a really important, so the word um, kinsman is the word in Hebrew is goel, okay, G-O-E-L. And here's why this is important, because, and, and I'll, I'll read to you, so you don't have to go to these passages, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you some responsibilities of, the, of a kinsman. Basically, she identifies um, Boaz as someone who had a responsibility to his family, and, and um, that responsibility was to be a kinsman redeemer. So the word goel is, is this kinsman redeemer. So Boaz had a particular responsibility in the case that there was a widow in the family. So here's some things that the, the kinsman redeemer would do. The kinsman redeemer was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. The kinsman redeemer was responsible to be the avenger of blood to make sure the murderer of a family member was uh, answered to that crime. He was responsible to buy back family land that had been forfeited. And he was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow. So in the case that there was a, that there was a widow that had not born an heir, the kinsman redeemer's responsibility was to marry her and to produce an heir to carry on the family line, okay? So that's what a kinsman redeemer would do. What Naomi is saying to Ruth is this Boaz is that kinsman redeemer in our family. And we're going to find out later on that it would go down... um, there was a lineage, I guess, of responsibility. Okay, so it would be first this guy's responsibility. If he didn't, if he didn't take that on, then it would go to whoever was next in line, and that was based on relationship. And we're going to find that out. Boaz wasn't necessarily the first in line to carry on this responsibility. There was someone else, and we're going to um, and we're going to look at that. But that's what the kinsman redeemer was. So Naomi says to Ruth, "This is who he is." And what she's about to do, what we're going to study today, she's about to tell Ruth that, that if this is who he is, this is your only chance of survival, okay? This, this gleaning from his field and uh, the, that, that my job um, as your mother-in-law, as she says it in verse 1, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi identifies this as a, a chance for Ruth to exit out of um, this lifestyle. You tracking? Okay, so she identifies this kinsman redeemer as as Ruth's hope to kind of uh, step out of the issue that they 
that they are in. Here's what's really cool. Um, and, and we're not going to even study this today. It's like there's so much here to study that we're not going to study. But the kinsman redeemer, um, the one that would redeem them, had to be um, in their family. He had to essentially be of the same blood that they were. And he was responsible for restoring life. So the line was dead, right? With a childless widow, the line was dead. And he was responsible, listen to this, through the covenant of marriage to restore life. Anybody else that was of the same blood as us that through marriage restores life? Jesus, right? This is an amazing picture of Jesus. What does the scripture say? That he was like us in every way, yet without sin. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He became like us, right? He had our blood running through his veins. He was like us. He was in our line. And through a covenant of marriage, he purchased us from certain death to life. So this is a picture of Jesus. Um, Boaz is the person of Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. And what we're going to study today is not that, which is, that's a really great study. Um, But what we're going to study today is Naomi's instruction to Ruth for what it looks like to come to Boaz. So we're going to, now, have any of you ever heard the word contrite? Melina and I were talking about this earlier. Good, a few of you. It's not a word we use very often, um, but we're going to we're going to study it today. It's really really important. The scripture is specific. Um, do we have for the slides the two passages in Psalms and Isaiah? Do we have those? I may not. Have, okay, good. Let's look at those. So there's a few places in the scripture that talk about being contrite. What we're going to look at um, is is uh, the way that Naomi instructs Ruth to go to Boaz, and, and how well, this is a picture of coming before God um, with a contrite heart. So we're going to look at what contrite really uh, is in the Scripture. Listen to this, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's out of the, the old King James, right? Here we go. So does that, that probably isn't out of the King James. Okay, yeah, it's good, good, good. Okay, good. Psalm 34, listen to this. So I want you to start to begin to form a picture of what does God think of a contrite heart. So it says the first one, um, uh, sorry, uh, the second one, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is, is not, I got to read it from the King James because it's just good. The Lord is nigh unto them. Did you guys say that this morning? That you were nigh unto breakfast? Okay. The, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is, of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of contrite ones. So is, what is God's attitude? What is his demeanor towards those with a contrite heart? He wants to restore. He wants to build them up. He wants to save. God looks favorably on those with a contrite heart. But what does contrite mean? Anybody? Okay, there's, say again. Yeah, broken, humble, guilt, remorse. The Hebrew word, the direct translation of it is to be crushed. To be crushed is to be contrite. It's to be totally 
humble and bowed down in the context of our relationship with God. It's to be totally humble and bowed down. Here's what I think is really important. Does it remind you of anything that Jesus says, maybe in like Matthew 11, I don't know, verse 28 or something? Anybody? Let's read it. That's a good suggestion. What does he say? We just saw in the Old Testament God's viewpoint towards those with a contrite heart. Jesus echoes this in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when he says, Come to me, those who are weary and burdened. Why? What will he do? I will give you rest. God's invitation is for those that have a contrite heart to come to him, and there will be restoration, there will be salvation, there will be life, there will be rest. So come. God's invitation, the invitation of the kingdom of heaven, is to come to him with a contrite heart. What does that mean? Come to him crushed. It doesn't mean feeling bad about yourself. It means knowing your place before God. Super important to understand that. Knowing your place before God. It is, it's to agree with the words of the prophet when, when God uh, appears to him and he says, whoa, 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 woe is me. I am unclean and bows down before God. That is to step into God's presence with a contrite heart. Naomi's going to instruct Ruth and she's going to give her five things. Remember how we talked about three points? So she's going to give her five things, okay? And she's going to smile. That's okay. She's going to give her five things. And what it, what it is for us today, what we're going to look at is a picture of coming before the Lord with a contrite heart and what that looks like. So here's what she says, okay? Verse three. She says first, actually, let's back up. I don't want to get, I don't want to miss that second verse. Is not Boaz our relative or our kinsman redeemer with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5, and she replied, this is Ruth, all that you say I will do. Okay, so it sounds super sketchy. <laughs> just Let's just get it out there. It sounds super, super sketchy. Culturally, this was not sketchy at all, okay? What she's doing is she's going with this contrite heart. What she's doing is she's going in absolute humility before Boaz to request of him to be this kinsman redeemer. Now, again, he's not the first in line, okay? I feel like probably the reason that Naomi suggests him, number one, is that he is in line to be a kinsman redeemer, but also because of his character, because what had he already shown? He'd already shown favor towards Ruth. He already knew her story. He even tells her um, uh, uh, who she is, and we're going we're gonna to see that here in just a second. But what she was doing is she was going and she was positioning herself, because what she's asking is a huge thing, okay? What she's asking is a huge thing. And to go and lay herself before his feet, this was not sexual at all. This kind of, we kind of read this and we go, what in the world is going on here? This was an act of total humility, respect, and honor. Okay, She's going to go and just lay her life down before him. And it's a picture of coming before the Lord with a contrite heart. And I want to, I want to look at that. Okay, So what is the first thing that Naomi tells her to do? There's five. So what's the first thing that she says to do? Wash. Yeah. She tells her to wash. The first few things, um, the first few things that we're going to look at are actually things that God has done on our behalf. What is washing a picture of? 
What do you think, Taylor? What do we just... Taylor got a bath a few weeks ago here. It's called baptism, all right? Anybody smile? Okay, guys, you're like, what? This is... This is taking a turn I didn't expect. I didn't know there was a bathtub at the church. It is. It's called a baptistry. And what does it represent, right? What happens? It's a picture of what? The cleansing that happens to us when we come to Christ Jesus. It's this total immersion in the cleansing water of his blood. And we come out raised new to life. This first thing, this first to come to God with a contrite heart is to first be washed and cleansed. Jesus, when he's talking to the disciples and he's, he, he tells them, that he wants to wash their feet, what does Peter object and say? He says, no, 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 don't do that. And Jesus says, but I need to. I'm a servant. That's what I've come for. And then Peter says, I'm all in, right? He says, wash all of me, right? And what does Jesus say? Y'all tracking? Y'all got the story? Come on. What does he say? Wash all of me. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You have only need that I wash your feet, right? What's the, what's the picture here? There's two types of cleansing in the Christian life. There is that moment where we come to Jesus for salvation and he totally and completely cleanses us. All of sin is dealt with and gone. And then this other picture, this washing of the feet, what would happen to their feet as they were to, to go about their day? Anybody ever walked on a dirt road? Barefoot? What happens? Your feet get dirty, right? And what do you need to do? You need to take a, a bath? No, you just need to get the water hose. It is every time I mow the grass. It's like, just, right, just sprinkle off your feet, right? And sometimes, man, after weed eating, I got to get after it. Like, I got to get the big nozzle on and really go, right? Because it gets caked on it, right, Don? Don knows what I'm talking about. Amen, right? So the point was, you have no need for this over and over and over complete cleansing. You just need this thing called repentance, this washing your feet, because life's going to happen and stuff's going to get dirty. Come to me and I will continue to restore you back to life. So this cleansing that she offers, uh, that she tells Ruth to go through, is this picture of our washing and cleansing that comes in Christ. And it is absolutely paramount for us to come to God with a contrite heart. We cannot be saved less and I'll say this too, there is no repentance lest there is a contrite heart before God. Because sin at its core is arrogance before God. You with me? Sin at its core is a rejection of God as God and repentance is the same, it requires the same thing. That I need the work of God in order to be cleansed. The second thing she tells her to do, what is it? To wash and then what? Yeah, what does it say? It's an it's A word. Yeah, anoint yourself with perfume or with oil. This is a beautiful picture. Every time you see oil and anointing in the scriptures, you need to think of the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And to anoint yourself would be to, would be to start with the head, right? It was an anointing that would begin with the head. And the idea was that anything that happened here was total and complete. What's the very next thing that happens to us as we come to God and he cleanses us? What's the very next thing? It's the promise. It's the seal of our salvation. What are we filled with? What are we covered with? The Holy Spirit. Jesus used the words of baptism of the Holy Spirit. That word baptism is immersion. That's what that word in the, um, in the Greek means, is to be fully and completely immersed in, right? And Jesus says that I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, meaning I'm going to cover you and fill you completely with the Holy Spirit. So Naomi tells Ruth to wash. There's this cleansing and then anoint yourself with oil. Be covered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to see this. Mark Bearden covered this for us a few weeks ago. 
But uh, Ephesians chapter 1, do we have that for the screen? Okay. Y'all go ahead and go there. I want you to see this. This is a really, I think, amazing, amazing truth and something that I think we, I don't know, forget, I think, a lot. But look at this, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It's that cleansing. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. Everybody say guarantee. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is absolutely fundamental and crucial that you recognize that the moment that the work of Christ comes into our life and we are cleansed, freed, and given a new life, the, the, the old is gone and the new has come, that newness comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's vital that we know this because the Holy Spirit is the seal, the pledge of all that is ours in Christ Jesus knowing that the Spirit of God lives in me and is for me, secures me in the work that Christ has done for me and will continue to do. You ever felt not saved? You ever gone through a a time where it's like, man, I don't even know if I can hear God. I don't even know if I can take this next step. I don't even know. You ever been just like really disoriented in your Christian walk? Anybody? What happens when you go to other evidences, other proofs? What happens when you go to your circumstances to try to figure out where's God at? Does it work? No, it's more disorienting. What happens when you go to your feelings? Because those never change, right? It's a dangerous question for you to ask. Well, I don't really feel saved. I wonder if I'm saved. I wonder if, I wonder if there's really this relationship that's happening. Maybe I've just really screwed up. And maybe this, this guilt and shame is kind of building. I don't feel it. If we go to that feeling, then we're going to feel that God is distant. And the reality is that's a total and complete lie because he's given us the seal. It's important that you recognize that the seal is a person and the person is in you. How many of you have gotten far away from what's in you? It's a weird question. What helps you breathe? Yeah, okay, okay. Um, they're, They're right in here. Angela, your lungs. Any of you, any of you ever put distance between you and your lungs? Right? Try not to. It would be helpful to keep them. Okay? Right? You can't put distance from what's in you. And that's, listen to me. Maybe that didn't work. Okay? Erase it if it didn't work. My point is that what's in you stays with you. I've, I've been in moments. Anybody ever run a mile? Okay? I've been in moments where I did not feel like my lungs were with me. I felt like they were melting on the inside. But were they there? Did I feel like it? Probably not. But they were there. The point is that that seal is a person and that person is the Holy Spirit who is in you. So if if he's in me and he's never going anywhere, so regardless of my feelings, regardless of whatever I'm in, that seal is the guarantee of our salvation and our salvation is guarantee of the gifts that God has given us, the promise of his presence. You can go nowhere and flee from his presence. David found that out, right? He's in you and with you. Okay, I love to talk about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's the next thing. I'm just going to give you a few references because I don't have time. Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16 is where Jesus tells us he's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. All right? So you can just write those down if you're taking notes. Okay, what's the next thing that 
Go back to Ruth. I hope you marked it. Hey, guys, look at this. this if you have a paper Bible, super helpful. Especially like when you're in a place like Ruth where it's like it's really hard to get back to in the song Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Samuel. It's not in your head. Use this, all right? That's what I'm doing, okay? <laughs> the what? Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Put on your best clothes. It's the next thing. I forgot the question I asked you, and you're answering it. Good. <laughs> I was really trying to recover. All right. The next thing she does, put on your best, put on your best clothes. Okay, this is a little more obscure. Okay, so washing, cleansing, we're like, woo, salvation. Oil, anointing, we're like, that's the Holy Spirit. I get that. What about clothes? What's that a picture of in the scriptures? It's testimony. The changing of clothes is testimony. So when someone would grieve, they would clothe themselves with what? Oh, this is, you got to really dig deep here. And ashes. It was an outward sign of, the, of what they were journeying in, right? Clothes in the scripture is always testimony. This is a really cool picture. What, is, what has just totally changed if there's been cleansing and anointing? Your, your story, your testimony, your life is changed, right? What is old is gone and what is new has come. So, so Naomi tells Ruth to wash herself, to be anointed with oil, and then to put on new raiment, to put on new clothes, to wear this story of washing and anointing. This is a beautiful picture of what is new in us in Christ Jesus. All right, I'm going to speed up. What's next? This one's a little, little tricky. Can you find it? What's next? Okay, and what? Yeah, go and lie down on the threshing floor. What? Okay, so she's washed, cleansed, anointed, new clothes. Doesn't she want to just kick the door in and go, bam, I'm here. Right? Look at me. Nobody? I wonder what the youth think happens in here on Sunday morning. <laughs> They're like next door. I wonder, there's, he screams a lot. <laughs> Right? What, wouldn't you think if there's cleansing and this anointing with oil and new clothes, wouldn't you think like that would be like, go wake the man up. Show him how wonderful and splendid you are. Right? Because uh, this is all on the line. He needs to marry you. But that's not what the directions were. What was it? Go and essentially make yourself low. Go and lay at his feet. What is lying down a picture of? Humility, submission, a contrite heart. Listen, <laughs> humility is one of these words that's really tricky. Because I think what we've done is we've made humility bad self-esteem. <laughs> I think that I see that a lot in the, in, the, in the Christian world. It's like you need to really think poorly of yourself because that's who you really are. And that's kind of how we define sin. Is it like you're this terrible thing and you need to know always that you're this terrible thing capable of terrible things. That'll keep you humble, (laughs) right? There's a problem with that. And the problem is in the fact that we've been commanded to love others as we love ourselves. Anybody ever try to love somebody else with that kind of attitude? I think that comes across. Well, I'm awful, but I don't know what that means for you, right? Right? 
Humility is not bad self-esteem. Listen to me. It sounds really, really, really good to go, well, I'm still just this terrible sinner. I'm still just this terrible person. That feels like humility. That is arrogance against the work of the cross. Because what does the cross say about you? That in him, you are not what you were. How dare you believe that you are what the cross has rescued you from. His resurrection has given you what, you what you did not deserve, but what you are, which is alive and new and cleansed and forgiven and filled and with purpose. Now, does that mean that we, didn't, we need not watch our steps and we need not be aware of our potential to, to not walk in faith? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that creates in us arrogance, but I think it's a greater arrogance to to belittle the cross than it is to believe about myself what Jesus says that I am. And if you want to argue with me, that's fine. I didn't do it for myself. Take it up with the cross. Take it up with the resurrection. If you don't believe that I am what I'm saying that I am, ask the scriptures. Humility is not bad self-esteem. Humility is understanding, and understanding is a word that I'm trying to use not just intellectually. It's a full and complete understanding, body, soul, and spirit. It's an understanding of who God is, which creates a posture of worship and humility from me before God, who is alone God. What does Genesis 1-1 say? Discipleship school people. In the beginning, God, what? Created two categories. What are the two categories? God and everything else. Humility comes from knowing that. Humility comes from knowing my place in that order, that God is God, he alone is God, the one true God, and he deserves, because he's God, my complete and total worship. That is humility. You can have humility and have a smile on your face. There are a lot of people that are talking about humility and they look miserable. It's because that's the bad self-esteem Christians. Don't be one of those, right? That's why in humility, we can have joy. And the scripture commands us to have joy, even in humility. Joy is not arrogance. Joy comes from the recognition that in my proper place, in humility before God, I'm fully alive, amen? Come on, that's a good place to be. I can dance and sing and shout and it's not arrogance. It looked like arrogance, right? What it, in David, it looked like arrogance. But it wasn't. It was humility being manifested in joy, right? I don't know. I just, that's, what, that's the camp I want to be in, all right? You can be bad self-esteem Christian if you want. All right. So she goes and lays down. And then this one, oh my gosh, this one, we don't talk about this enough. What is, she, what is the last thing that she tells her to do? This is number five. You're doing great, by the way. We're two points past your threshold, okay? You're doing great. <laughs> What's the last thing? Okay, that's lay down and uncover his feet. So I'm, I'm gonna give you a pass. That's all grouped together. What's next? Yeah, listen and what? He'll tell you what to do, but what does she tell, what does she tell her? Do what he says to do. Right? What's the last thing? Obey. Oh, man. <laughs> All this other stuff that was like in my heart, we were good with. <laughs> right? All those other stuff's kind of internal. 
and I'm okay, but then like the action, like do whatever he says. This is a picture of obedience. Listen, a contrite heart will always propel us to obedience. Because the same heart that is humble before God because we know who God is and his place will be propelled to action because from that place of humility, we trust him. How could we not walk in obedience to the God that we've given everything to, the one that we acknowledge as the one true God, the one who saved us and rescued us and we laid ourselves before him acknowledging who he is? Of course, in the context of that relationship, when he speaks, I will listen and go. Look at me. That's not easy. Not making that sound like that's, that obedience is this easy step. But look, obedience should be natural. Okay? Not easy. It should be natural in this progression. You tracking? You know the difference? There is the difficulty of like, oh, that is against my flesh. But it's natural because obedience will, what we try to do, I think a lot of times, is we forget all the first four things and just force obedience. Or we just don't talk about obedience and we we just talk about being right on the inside. We do one of those two things, right? And how many of you have ever tried to be obedient outside of a kind, good, and loving relationship? It doesn't work, does it? Because obedience requires trust. Obedience requires the understanding of the goodness that comes from the one who is asking me. You with me? If I don't trust you, I'm not going to do what you say. Why would I? I don't trust you. Especially if I doubt whether or not what you want is good for me. You with me? You ever had like somebody like that in your life? It's like you asked me to do that because it serves you. Obedience doesn't really flow from a good place if it even happens. And so we try to force obedience without that other stuff. That's not going to work. You will not be obedient to a Lord and to a God that you do not know. I think a lot of times what we see in the church is that's that behavior modification Christianity that I rail against all the time. That is religion and God hates it. Do, 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 do. That, God hates that. I feel pretty confident speaking with that harsher language because it is destructive in the context of a relationship with the one who has purchased us through marriage to himself. How healthy do you think my marriage with Lindsay would be if all I did was tell her what to do? How many of y'all know we would not be married today? Think I'm playing? How effective would that relationship be? Hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It would be dead before it started. She'd have been smart enough not to come around me. Some of y'all ladies need to listen. Don't come around people like that. It's another day. My point is that obedience comes from these first four things. So that's the first deal. We can't detach obedience and not have those other things. But we also can't have those other things and think that our Christian life can just be about my heart and what's on the inside. James absolutely puts that to trial and says it does not work. The book of, just read the book of James if you think you can divorce obedience from faith. You cannot. Works and obedience flow from faith, flow, flow from those other things. When we come to God with a contrite heart, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's natural. Obedience is natural. Because... He is the one who has saved me. We've built trust and relationship. And so when he asks me, I will do. Okay, I am dreadfully short of time. No, I'm not. That is fast. The Holy Spirit just gave us four minutes. 
I don't know if it's one of those deals like with the light, like where the sun stopped or what, but we got four minutes. He got what, 24 hours? Was that right? Is it, he got 24 hours? Did Elijah get 24 hours? That's ridiculous. I just got four minutes. I need to pray harder, right? Y'all laugh. Golly. Oh my gosh. All right. Here's the other thing I want to say about obedience and then we'll finish this up because there's one other part that's really important. Obedience is primarily an agreement to be who God has called us to be. Obedience is found in becoming who God has called us to be, not doing what he says to do. Okay? Those two things are, they're, they're two parts of the whole. The whole is obedience. Obedience is both becoming who God is asking me to become, is helping me to become by the Holy Spirit, and doing what he says. You can't, you can't think of obedience as just Okay, if God asks me to go pray for that person, I'm going to do that. Is that obedience? Yes. If God asks me to go to Haiti, am I going to do that? Is that obedience? Yes. But that's a, that's a piece of the pie, not the whole of the pie. What if God asks you to be compassionate? Does he? Yes. So how do I go do compassion? I don't. It's formed in me. So obedience is also the process of allowing the Spirit of God to form me into the person of Jesus. That's obedience too because I have to say no to me and yes to the work of the Spirit of God that is on the inside of me. So I have to agree with God that compassion is better than arrogance or pride. And what may be going off as alarm bells in my brain? The desire to be prideful. So obedience is also saying no to pride and and being clothed with compassion as the scripture says that I am. And by faith, believing that the spirit of God will then power that and change that in me. That is also in obedience. And I would say you can't take those two apart either. That we have to be doing them both at the same time. Second Peter chapter one, read it. It's all about transformation of character that comes in our relationship with God and that we should press into that process. I think when we hear obedience, we just think God's got a lot of stuff for me to do and I'm going to go do it. And I would just tell you that I think you're going to be less capable of responding to God's voice in those moments where he tells you to go and do if you haven't practiced responding to his voice when he changes who you are. How many of you know that familiarity is huge when it comes to obedience? Do I recognize his voice? You tracking? How many of you asked that question before? Like, I don't know if that's God or not. I feel this in me. I don't know if that's God or not. I don't know if that's God speaking or not. And I think a lot of the reasons that we get into that predicament is because we haven't practiced hearing him on the inner man as he changes and shapes who we are. What we've tried to do is just make obedience. Where do I go and what do I do? And because of that, we just hear him intermittently. We just listen when it's time to make a decision and not on the daily basis when he's shaping us into the person of Jesus. Y'all with me? I don't have a lot of time to spend there, but that's really, really, really important that we're daily practicing hearing the Spirit of God as He forms us into the person of Jesus. It will help us be obedient at the command to go and do. Are we good there? Can we? Okay. Last thing. So, I love this, and, and please don't miss this. We, I think you'll talk about this a little bit in your life groups. Summer groups. I keep saying that. This summer, it's summer groups. That's been really hard for me. Sorry. Every time Melina's like scowling at me, like that's not what it's called. Whatever. No one's ever seen Melina scowl, so it's, that's a lie. Okay. <laughs> All right. Don't miss this. Boaz responds. You can read it. I've got to finish. Boaz responds and says, absolutely. 
I hope that you know that's the heart of our God. It is a yes and a welcome. It is his delight to be our redemption. I think some of you have a picture of God that's like way standoffish and pretty mean and looks really eerily like Zeus. (laughs) That's not him. He doesn't describe himself that way. And I think you just, I hope that by this power of the spirit of God, you see the kind, good, and compassionate God that we serve delighted to be your redemption. Delighted to pay for what you owed. And when we come before him, is delighted that we have done so. And goes, absolutely, I'll join myself to you. I love you. I hope you know that's just his attitude. I think he's a happy dude. I think he is, his disposition is that of joy and happiness all the time. Not Santa Claus. Not, and that's not what I'm describing. But I think his delight is to welcome his children. And that's what Boaz does. The last thing, there's a child born from this marriage. So he says yes. And he goes to the guy that's actually in line. And the guy listens to him and is like, sure, I'll take the land of the family. That sounds great. What's the cost? And then he goes, actually, you've got to marry Ruth. And the guy goes, no, I'm not doing that. It's a picture of the law. No relationship, just the other stuff. And it could not buy her back. It could not give her life. It could just, it could just the, the, the first guy could just have the land. But when it came to covenant relationship, it couldn't produce. And Boaz then becomes the kinsman redeemer. And there's a child born. And the child's name is, ooh, quiz, Obed. What does the word Obed mean in Hebrew? It's so cool. Worship. Because that is absolutely the offspring of a contrite heart before God. Worship, right? We come before God, and the product of that relationship in us is worship over and over and over and over again. And that's all I can say there because it really is 1030 now. All right, so those five things. And I think you did okay for a... July 1st, Sunday. You guys okay? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for today. We thank you for this word that you've given us. And uh, God, we just pray that by your spirit, we would understand and discern the truth that is in it. In Jesus' name.